Exodus, hopefully not uh, the last time in your life, but the last time in our study of Exodus. Of course, the book goes on beyond chapter 15, but this is where we're going to land the plane after, what, about seven months on the calendar or so. We've been in this study, a little break here and there, but the bulk of the last seven months have been studying Exodus, and we're going to shift gears to uh, the New Testament book of Galatians, studying from start to finish all the way through. Uh, We'll begin that next week. But that leaves us today, wrapping up Exodus. Uh, If you need a Bible, there are some of the seats in front of you, or if you want to follow along on your device or your copy of God's Word, however you want to do that, feel free. Uh, As we begin reading chapter 15 in just a moment, you're going to see, or maybe you already heard as we read some of the verses, uh, we're looking at a song today, uh, a song that is recorded in Scripture that the people of God sang uh, those years ago. And there's something powerful about music, right? We all know this, that music moves us, it captures our hearts, it engages our minds, it allows us to express emotion uh, in, a, in a way, both positive and negative emotion, with, with a depth that seems unparalleled. Uh, right now on my playlist, if you were wondering, uh, on repeat is a little, little Joni Mitchell, a little John Legend, anybody? Yeah. Little Jackson Brown, a little T. Swift thrown in there for good measure, a little Phil Wickham, a little Phil Wickham. Anybody, what's on your playlist? Let's just throw something out. Throw it, come on. Something. What? T-Pain, okay. Okay, okay. Little Journey, little, okay, all right. All right, that was, you know, we tried that, that just happened. All right, good work, everybody. But but really, there's something powerful about music, and we shouldn't be surprised then to see that the Bible's full of songs, actually. If we look at the Psalms in the Old Testament, many of them are meant to be Sung out loud, sung in worship. Uh, Here we're looking at Exodus 15, and there's a song that the people are singing. And so we're going to dive into it and see, well, what did it mean for them? And then what does it mean for us today? Exodus 15, verse 1, says this. It says, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he's hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength. In my defense, he has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Would you pray with me one more time? Father, we come to your word with humble hearts, just recognizing our need. Lord, we need you to teach us, to guide us, to help us uh, understand what we read, Lord. And so we turn to you. And pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes and our ears. Lord, uh, teach us, take this time and uh, convict us and encourage us and do your work, Lord, in our hearts. Uh, We love you. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, well, chapter 15 begins with the line you saw, Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. And then you can imagine a sick beat dropping in the background. The beat comes bumping in, and they go and sing 
this song. And I'm not going to try and recreate uh, the, you know, the, the beat or the tone or whatever. We'll just leave it to our imagination exactly what it sounded like. But they start to sing. And you see, it's a song of praise. It's a song of celebration. It's a song of rejoicing. And let's remember again why they're celebrating. Right? We looked at chapter 14 where God miraculously, miraculously rescued his people and, and led them across the Red Sea, out of Egypt, into freedom. And really, we've seen for, for months and months and months now, this was God's plan, that God was, was powerfully involved and at work in their life to bring them out of slavery into freedom. And we just saw that he did exactly that in a miraculous way. And so, in response, they're singing and they're celebrating. And if you skip down, look at verse 19. You see kind of a summary of the events that, that led to this. Verse 19. After the song, it says, When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. And then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with, with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them. And this is basically a quote from, from verse uh, one, how the song starts, sing to the Lord, for he's highly exalted, both horse and driver he is hurled into the sea. So in response to what God has done, there's this song of celebration, this singing and dancing. And you get the feeling as, as you read that, that this wasn't something that was forced it wasn't like a drag. It wasn't like they were ready to go to lunch and the worship leader said, one more song, people. And everyone's like, we're ready to eat, man. No, it's not that. We see it just kind of flows out of them, right? This, this bubbling up out of their hearts, this, this song of praise and celebration, almost as if it's this natural response. When, when we see the work of God and they experience all that God has done for them, the, the natural response is this, this grateful uh, outpouring of, of praise. This is why we sing on Sundays, because we celebrate and remember what God has done, and then in response, we, we sing and we rejoice and we remember together. And this song serves as, a, again, a great way to, to land the plane, to kind of end our study in the book of Exodus, because you maybe already noticed it, it summarizes or it uh, retells a lot of the story or the things that we've seen already. Okay, so there's some repetition here, some themes, some concepts that we've already talked about uh, for the past few months, sometimes at great length. Uh, it kind of captures those and reminds us of those. And so what I want to do briefly is just, just go through and kind of point out what are some of those, those themes, those, those big ideas that are found in the text that, that remind us uh, who God is and what God has done. And so we're going to move kind of quickly here because, again, we've talked about these at length before, but so brief summary, a couple things we see in the text. First, the song reminds us that God saves his people. Right? Very simple, very to the point, God saves his people. Verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Or verse 3, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Right, this gets at chapter 14, verse 14. The Lord will fight for us, right? You remain still. God will fight the battle. God brings 
salvation. He is a warrior. And so we see that for, for the people of Israel being led out of slavery in Egypt, God is the one who wins the victory. He makes a way for them. He rescues them. It's by his strength and his power and his work, not their own doing. And so this reminds us, very simply, of, of the gospel, right? We don't have to get too complicated here or too, too fancy with this here. We can just, again, affirm that as God saved the Israelites out of Egypt, so God saves us through faith in Christ. He saves us from sin and death, judgment and condemnation. He forgives our sins. He restores us to right relationship with him, not through what we do, but through what he has done, the victory that he has won in Christ. And that's why we're here today. Friends, isn't, isn't that at, at the heart of what we're about, why we gather to, to celebrate that we've been rescued? Right? We're not here because we're pretty good people and you know, we just want to get a few tips and pointers on how to be even better people. No, we're here because we were desperate and hopeless and God came and saved us and rescued us. I don't think there's really any way to be a Christian without that as a starting point. I need to be rescued. I need to be saved. And Jesus is my only hope. And so it's a simple invitation for us, friends, for each of us in this room, to look to Jesus as Savior, as Rescuer. He's led us out of slavery to sin and death and judgment. Because of our sin, we were worthy of condemnation, separation from God, judgment. But, but God, in his mercy and grace, has made a way for us to know him. And so Jesus wants us to trust him and his work to lead us out of Egypt. The second thing we see in the song is that God stands alone. God stands alone in this act of salvation. He shows himself to be the unparalleled ruler of the universe. Look at verse 11. They're singing, remembering what God has done. They say, who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? Or, or verse 18, if you skip down a little bit, the song ends, the Lord reigns forever and ever. God rules, God reigns. We use the word, God is sovereign in power over all things. And so much of the story of Exodus has boiled down to exactly that and the question of who's really in charge? Or don't we see that with Pharaoh? Pharaoh just constantly is pushing back against God. Pharaoh wants to call the shots. Pharaoh's the king of Egypt. He wants to be in charge. Why, why am I supposed to listen to this God? Why should I care what God commands or what God forbids? Why should I listen? I'm Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And we realize that, that so many of us have that same question, right? Who is the Lord? Why, why exactly should I listen to this God? But God shows Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has to learn the hard way, that, that God is in charge. He is sovereign. He rules and reigns. But, but not only does he rule and reign, but we see that he is majestic. He is glorious, right? Verse 11 says, majestic in holiness. He's awesome in glory. He works wonders. And so not only is he powerful, but he is good. He's good and beautiful and, and for us and works wonders for 
our good. And it's so important that we see the heart of God here, that, that other gods claim to be able to rescue, to provide life and protection for you, right? In ancient Egypt, there were plenty of spiritual options for people to look to gods they could believe in and, and that they hoped would, would help them, help their crops to grow or help the rains to come, whatever it might be, protection and life. But this is showing us that, that God alone is able to deliver on his promises. These, are, these other gods, these other gods that we look to today, whether it be money we worship or relationship status or, or power or control or whatever it is that we look to for life and for protection, God shows that he alone can deliver on those promises. Plenty of things will make claims Plenty of gods will claim to be able to give you what you are looking for. But God is showing, I alone can save you, can protect you, can give you life, can, can guide you. He alone works wonders. So God is powerful and sovereign and rules over all things, and God is good. He is for us. He is faithful. He works wonders in our lives. And it's not only amazing that God saves us and that he's for us, but it, it's amazing how he saves us. It's not by our own works. It's not by us being good enough, working hard enough, getting your act together enough. And if you, seriously, if you take a, a look around the religious landscape of today or the religious landscape of much of history, there's this repeated theme of salvation by works. Behave right, act right, become the right type of person, do the right sorts of things. Or even if you think about uh, the principle of karma, right? Like the world or the or God or the universe or whatever's out there will, will bless you if you put good out in there into the world. And so do good and it'll come back to you, right? Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad, because that's how the world works. But that's, that's not the truth of the gospel. That's not how God operates. The gospel actually tells us that God gives us what we do not deserve. Even in our sin and even in our rebellion, God chooses to, to bless us and forgive us and be merciful towards us. So God gives us what we do not deserve. He does for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so it's not as if he, he's looking to the uh, people of Israel in slavery and is like, you know what, you guys need to kind of get your stuff together a little bit and, and then I'll come and rescue you. Or you guys need to show some progress towards freedom and then I'll decide to show up. Or you guys need to uh, give a little bit more money to charity or you got to avoid those swear words I keep hearing around, okay? Just get rid of those and then maybe I'll show up and, and you know, uphold my end of the bargain. But you guys got to, you know, meet me halfway. He doesn't say that. He rescues them completely out of his grace, not because of anything they have done or earned or worked for, but because he loves them and wants to bless them. And so remember again, this is, we talked about this a few weeks ago. You might not have been here, but we talked about how the order of the book of Exodus is very, very important. Okay, so what comes first? Rescue, salvation, God bringing his people out of Egypt across the Red Sea miraculously. Then, then in chapters 19 
20 and on, we get the law and the Ten Commandments and the covenant. Okay, and so, so first comes salvation. I will save you. I will rescue you. I will radically transform your life. And then I will teach you how to obey. I will teach you how to follow me. I will give you my law, my commands. Here's what it looks like. Now that you know me, now that you belong to me, here's how I want you to live. But what do we do? We, we get that in reverse, don't we? And we, we assume, well, God has these laws and these commands and this really big book and all these things we got to do and follow. And if we can jump through the hoops in just the right way, then God will give us salvation. Then God will rescue us. Then God will consider us his own. But again, the order of Exodus is the exact opposite. Grace, salvation, rescue. Then law, obedience, commands. Both are important, but the order has to be right. And so God saves us, not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done. And we receive that through faith. The third thing we see in this song is the fact that judgment is good news. And this is where uh, maybe there will be some pushback in the room. This may be a difficult concept for us today, but, but you probably noticed this in the passages we read. Verse 1. <coughs> I will sing to the Lord, for he's highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. Or verse 4. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, shattered the enemy. And so we'll read on. You can even read on for, for just a few more verses and see that the author of Exodus 15 is celebrating God's judgment falling on the Egyptians. Right? That, that's a reason he's celebrating. It's not as if that's a, an inconvenient truth for the author of the, psalm, or of the chapter to try and avoid. Like God saved us and the Egyptians drowned and we're kind of uncomfortable talking about that, so let's, not, let's just kind of move right past it. No, there are verse after verse after verse celebrating the fact that judgment came upon the Egyptians. Now, again, that's, that's often an uncomfortable thing for us to think about or talk about. Maybe it's a foreign concept to us. But in Scripture, we, we see, as we've noted before, judgment is good news, that deep down we desire a God of justice. We, we desire a God who will heal his broken world, a God who will put an end to injustice, who will deal with evil and evildoers? I mean, don't we look around at the state of the world, at some of the things being done to people, the abuse and things uh, happening in the world, and we say, I, I want this to be fixed. I want those people to be held accountable. I want there to be, to be justice. We don't, we don't want it just to be ignored or swept under the rug. We, we want someone or something to do something about that. And the Bible gives us hope that we serve a God who will not Look the other way when it comes to sin and evil that is damaging his world and damaging his people. We serve a God who will one day hold evil and evildoers accountable, who will bring about true justice. And friends, this is not something that 
you don't, again, this isn't just like a Christian thing. You don't have to be a Christian to deep down want there to be justice, right? Think about plenty of people who are, are you know, spiritual but not religious or uh, would consider themselves atheists or agnostics still have this strong sense of, of, of justice, of, of right and wrong in the world, of, of, of wanting the wrongs and the evil in the world to be dealt with and taken seriously. And it's a, a pretty universal human desire. And so the scriptures show us, again, the good news that, that God will deal with evil and sin. He takes it seriously. He will hold all people accountable. And so we see that, that Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they, they dishonored God and they enslaved the people of God and they abused them and they harmed them and they dealt harshly with them. And so God does something about that. And so, friends, we, we could stop there and we'd, we'd have plenty to chew on, wouldn't we? There, there's a, a God who stands alone, one sovereign ruler of the universe who, who saves and rescues his people and judges evil in the world. We, we could stop there, those three things, and say that. We've gone a long way in terms of theology and what the Bible tells us about God. But there's more to this text than just those truths in this song. We've we got to think a little bit more fully about what's going on here in the text. Uh, the song, you'll see, is not just pointing back, hey, here's what God has done, here's how God has saved us. It does that. But it's also pointing forward. It's also looking ahead to the future for the people of God and, and where God is leading them. And that's sometimes uh, a concept that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about. As Christians, sometimes we spend a lot of time looking back at how God has saved us and rescued us and how Jesus died for us on the cross, and we need to remember that. We need to remember the gospel all the time. So it's not bad to look back, but sometimes we, we just we stop there. And we don't, we don't look forward to, to, okay, well then what's, what's ahead for us? What does that mean for, for my future? What does that mean for my life? What does that mean for where the world is going? Think about it this way. Sometimes, uh, well, let's see. Salvation is a gift, right? God gives it, salvation to us freely when we trust in him. It's a gift. And when you give a gift, you want the person who receives that gift to, to what? To use that gift, to enjoy that gift, to experience that gift. When I was uh, about graduating from college, my parents gave me a car as a gift. Uh, it was an older car that had been paid off. It was very generous of them. My brother got a car when he turned 16, um, but that's another story. I'm not bitter about that. <laughs> and mom and dad, I love you, and I'm grateful if you're hearing this, but I have questions. But anyways, they gave me this gift, and it would have been very strange if I received this gift, thanked them for this gift, wrote them a thank you note for the gift, expressed to them over and over how grateful I was for that gift, but never used the gift. Right? If I took that car and it just sat outside of my house and I never used it, that would be a little strange. They would ask me, hey, how, how's that going? How's the car? It's great. I love it. Thank you so much for it. Mom and Dad, I just want you to know I'm really grateful for it. I just want to, want to tell you, I'm going to sing songs to you about how grateful I am for it. And they say, well, that's very, uh, very well and all, but are you, how, how's it drive? Are you using it? How does it handle well, I don't drive it. I'm not using it. They would say, what? Right? They said, I didn't get you the car just to have it sit around. I gave you the car so you could use it and enjoy it and experience it. 
And so I'm glad you're telling me you're thankful for it and you have a grateful heart about the car. That's good and necessary. Now go get in the car and use it and drive around and do things, right? And so sometimes with our salvation, we, we, we just say, well, I'm going to just only look back. Say, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. And it is right to do that. And we then say, all right, Lord, what now would you have me do with this gift you've given me? What now would you have me do with my life and my time and my hours? Lord, what, what do you have for me? So a heart of gratitude that then leads to a life of action and obedience, stepping into this gift that God has given And so that's exactly what this song shows us, right? Look at verse 13. It says, In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. So God will lead his people. He will guide them forward. And then it goes on for a few verses to mention how the nations around will be uh, trembling and afraid because they know that God is with his people. And he's leading them and going before them. And then verse 17, it says, You will bring them in, your people, and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, Lord, that you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, Lord, your hands established. That you're going to bring them into the land. It's likely a reference to, again, the mountains, the hills of the promised land of Canaan where God is leading them. This land of inheritance, it says, or, or Jerusalem specifically, this place where the temple would be built, where they would worship God in the land. They're saying, God, you are taking us somewhere. We have a future. You have plans ahead for us. And so that's what the song is pointing us to, not just looking back. Yes, looking back. Yes, celebrating what God has done. And then looking forward. It wasn't just, hey, I brought you out of Egypt. Now be on your way like a, an Uber driver would, right? Got you to your destination, now, you know, have a nice day. No, he now leads them into the future. And so if the Israelites had this future to look forward to, the promised land, <clears throat> dwelling with God, his temple being built, and so on, then what, what do we have to look forward to as Christians? If we can look back and see the work of Jesus on the cross, the salvation he won for us, what then do we look forward to as Christians? What's ahead? There's a couple things we could say. <clears throat> First, we could look to, of course, the reality of uh, eternal life and the hope of the resurrection. The fact that those who are in Christ, though we die, will be made alive. Both body and soul will be given a new, healed, resurrected body to live and walk and eat and play in the kingdom of God with the Lord and with his people in his kingdom forever. We have eternity to look forward to. And again, this is not just a hope for us individually, but, but a hope for all the earth, that God is redeeming all things, that there is hope for renewal for the material world as well. Sometimes we think that, again, we're just going to float off and to a cloud somewhere, and the guy doesn't really care about like, physical existence, and so it doesn't really matter what we do with it, but, but God is going to renew and, and restore his world. We have the new heavens and the new earth to look forward to. A material existence will have bodies. And if you look towards, again, the end of history, Revelation 21, it talks about that, the new heavens and the new earth. It talks about how God's dwelling place, God will come down 
and dwell with his people in his restored world. We look at Revelation 19, a few chapters earlier in the book of Revelation, and we see the picture of eternity there is, is a feast. It's a wedding celebration, the wedding feast of the Lamb at the end of history. We can look to the, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, and what happens at the end of the story? There's a party. There's celebration. There's singing. There's dancing. <clears throat> there's food. There's drink. People are having a good time. Or you look at what, what did Jesus leave us to remember him by? He left a meal. Come to the table. Take the bread. Take the cup. Representing his body and his blood. And so there's all these indications in Scripture that we have this very joyous, celebratory eternity to look forward to. We live and eat and drink and play and explore God's good world with him and with his people forever. This is not us Again, sitting on a cloud, playing a harp, singing a hymn for all eternity. That's not the picture of heaven that we have in Scripture. So that's all good and necessary, but we also need to think about what does this mean for my immediate future, right? Like it's not just I, I pray a prayer, I know the Lord, and then I'm going to hang out in church for, you know, 50 years, and then I'll die. Like, like what does it mean for our lives now, for as you leave this building today and in the days and weeks ahead? What, what does it mean that God is leading you, that God is with you? Again, a couple things. First, we need to realize that our lives have purpose. Our lives have meaning. You know, back in the day, there were the four spiritual laws that were often talked about. The first one was what? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And it's true. God loves you and has a plan for your life. And that is a compelling reality, especially in our age today. Think about this. Author uh, Paul Gould says this. He wants to see how compelling that is. He says, The view of the world presented to us in the Bible is sacred and beautiful, yet our culture treats it as mundane, ordinary, familiar. As a culture, we're under a spell of materialism where we assume concepts like beauty, goodness, holiness, but they're disassociated from the wonder of receiving them as a gift from our Creator. Belief in God, faith, and religion are an embarrassment. Yet there's a universal longing for transcendence, a nostalgia for an enchanted cosmos, something beyond the ordinary and mundane that will not leave us. Moderns insist that everything is matter, right? the material world is all there is, but at the same time, through their actions, they reveal a deep longing to connect to something beyond the material world. And so he's kind of trying to take the pulse of our culture and saying, that, again, not necessarily Christian, non-Christian, just everybody. We have this sense, this, this longing for transcendence, for connecting to something bigger than ourselves, some bigger story that we're a part of. We see this again in the music we love, the stories we tell, the movies we love. There's often a longing for that, even though, again, many will say, well, there's nothing beyond the material world. This physical life is all that there is. Even though we say that, or many say that, there's still this desire, this hope that we'd be connected to something bigger. 
that there's a bigger, better story out there that explains who we are and why we're here and what that means for us. And so as Christians, we need to realize that we have that story. We have that bigger, better, transcendent story of real, personal creator God who made us, who knows us, who loves us, and who has a plan for us. And who calls us and will lead us out into the future to have an impact on our world, to see lives transformed both, both now and for eternity. There's good work for us to do. Right? Think of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. It says this, It's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Okay, so think about that. We are not saved by works. It says that very clearly. We're saved by grace. But then it goes on to say we are saved for works. We are saved in order that we might do good works, live in this new reality that God has purchased for us, that God has prepared in advance good works for us to do. Think about that. So, so back in Exodus, God is leading his people. He's taking them somewhere. He has plans for them. These aren't plans that they came up with. He has a purpose and a plan for them. And so in the same way, those of us who are in Christ, God has a plan. He has good works he's prepared in advance for us to do. Which means, which means that, that meaning, that purpose in life, that what we are to do is not something that we are to create. Think about this. Our meaning and our purpose in life is not something that we create. It's something that we discover. There's a really important difference. Because often what we're told today is meaning, purpose in life is found by you. You have to make something of your life. Purpose in life is what you make of it. So, so get to work. It's about you. Get, get to work. But, but, but realize that the Christian message is different. It's not that we create meaning. It's that we discover the meaning that God has prepared in advance for us to walk in. Christian author Jen Oshman uh, wrote this fabulous new book called Enough About Me. I would recommend it to every, every person here. Uh, it's actually written primarily to women, but it applies to all of us. Uh, and she says this, listen. She says, when we become our own source of meaning, we also become our only source of satisfaction and fulfillment. And so we set ourselves in a cycle of defining ourselves and worshiping ourselves to uphold this worldview, we must become our own masters. And ironically, we don't actually become free. We must not only muster our own meaning and goals and dreams, but we must supply our own energy and ability to accomplish them. With ourselves on the throne, we must truly be self-made women or men. We must conjure up everything from the meaning of life to the energy and ability to live it out. This makes us fragile. It's all on us. Today, we have to create our worlds and make them go around too. We are destroying ourselves by trying to follow ourselves. See, do you see what she's saying? The narrative so often today is that, hey, it's on you to make your life what it needs to be. So get to work, create that meaning, you do you, for you, by you, get to work, 
And she's saying that approach to life will destroy you. It will crush you. It places a burden on you that you were never intended to bear. And though it may sound like freedom, it's really slavery. She's saying the only way to truly be free is to step into this plan that God has already laid out for you. God created you for a purpose. He has plans for your life. So true freedom is found in stepping into that and realizing why you are here. And that doesn't come from yourself. It can only come from outside of yourself. God telling you why he's made you. There's joy here. There's life here. And so, friends, it leaves us to then consider, what does that mean for, what does that mean for me? We're going to have a lot of different answers. As you think about your life and your passions and your gifts and what you're good at and the skills God has given you and the things that he's placed on your heart and, and the family he's placed you in and the sphere of influence he's placed you in and where you work and the opportunities, the open doors that are in front of you. We all have to, to, to pray and consider, all right, Lord, what would you have me do with all of that? How would you have me leverage the opportunities I've been given, the strengths that I have for your kingdom, for your glory, and for the good of your world? Right? I'm not calling you all to go quit your jobs and go to seminary and join the ministry. Okay, that's not the application necessarily of this text. Maybe some of you want to do that. Great, let's talk. But for most of us, it's going to mean, all right, Lord, you are with me and have a plan for me out in the world, in my home at the school where I teach, at the business that I run, the law firm that I work for, the company that I serve. Lord, you have put me there for a reason, and you have good work for me to do. Yes, evangelism, yes, sharing the gospel, yes, pointing people to Jesus, but also the work itself has value. You've called me to, to, to serve my community, to contribute to the good of the world in some way, to work and create and see more and more, God, your world uh, reflect your heart and reflect your kingdom. So what would you have me do with all of this? My time and my career. Lord, use me. And the good news again is that God has prepared in advance good work for us to do. So we don't have to create it. We just have to discover it and step into it. And we do that by prayer. Just, I encourage you. Today, ask God, Lord, what would you have me do? Lord, would you give me clarity? Would you help me see what doors you're opening for me and help me step into them? Would you help me see? I think that's one of the simplest, most profound prayers we can pray. Lord, help me see. Help me see what's in front of me. I also encourage you, if, uh, again, you're here with friends or family, ask, ask one of them, hey, what, what do you see in me? What do you see God has gifted me in? What passions do you see kind of coming out of me? How do you think I'm wired? What, what do you think God would have me do? How do you think God wants to use me? What do you think it would look like to step into that and see what your friends and family members say? I bet you they'll have some insights that would surprise you or be very, very helpful to you on your journey. So I encourage you, friends, uh, we see this, this song in Exodus 15. And it points us back to what God has done, to celebrate, to praise, to worship, because God has saved us and rescued us. And we're going to do that. 
we're going to close our service by singing about who God is. And also, I encourage us now to, to look forward. To look forward and say, God, my life is yours. What would you have me do? Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we, just, uh, we are grateful that you have saved us. Uh, Jesus, you are the hero of the story. You died for our sins. You rose again. We have new life, forgiveness of sins, new hearts, a relationship with you, all because of what you have done. Thank you. It frees us, Lord, to realize that our lives are not our own. They belong to you. And we pray now that you would guide us into the future. You have plans for us. You are leading us forward. You are with us. Lord, help us see. Help us see what that means for each of our lives. That we might live for your glory and the good of others, the good of your world. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.